This week on Trek Mary Kill, Harvesters, Ballerinas, Bros. Next! Bashir and O'Brien help an alien race destroy a dangerous biological weapon. I've never seen an anabiogenic weapon so resistant. Next victims. You've been infected by the Harvesters. Now <laughs> We have only one chance to survive this thing. And that's to stay alive long enough for Commander Sisko to find us. But is it a struggle they're doomed to lose? My legs. I can't feel them. Are you saying both of my officers are dead? On the next episode of Star Trek. <laughs> Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Clint. Welcome to Trek, Mary, kill, a Star Trek podcast as rare as latinum. Joining us this week is Clint Worthington, the editor-in-chief of The Spool, a Chicago-based film and television website that features reviews, interviews, festival coverage, and more for new releases and classic fare alike. He also hosts the podcast Right on Cue, uh, where he interviews musical composers of film, TV, and video games, including Stephen Barton and Frederick Weedman from Star Trek Picard Season 3. Clint, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Brian. And I also want to point out that I've like uh, interviewed a lot other um, Star Trek folks there, too. You can find interviews with Nami Melamad um, about both Strange New Worlds and Prodigy. And I think I talked to Jeff Russo forever ago for Picard Season 1. So I think I may have covered almost everybody except for like Giacchino, who's my white whale. Uh, also like one of the friendliest guys in Hollywood. So it, you'll get him. That's what I'm saying. Eventually yeah, he's just happen. busy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. He's now yeah. directing now. So like, yeah, he's got a lot on his right. plate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, he is, he's also one of those big composers now who's kind of like at the bear McCreary Hans Zimmer level where, you know, and this is no shade to him, but he has a lot of folks who like he outsources a lot of his composing to, including Nami Melamad. Um, so like, you know, he'll, he'll pipe in with main themes and stuff and then have him, he's just that busy. He is everywhere. That score for Star Trek Picard season three was such a miracle. I'm just so impressed even now that I, I do like hearing people talk about it some more. So, uh, I thought it was a great interview. People should check it out and all the other ones. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate uh, it. And also just knowing that the back and forth now, video game composers, how they're jumping into film and TV and, and back and forth, vice versa. I mean, Giacchino, I think he got to start doing video games. Medal of too, Honor. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He started with Medal of Honor and then I saw him crop up on Lost and he kind of became JJ's guy. And yeah. I think it was sort of off to the races from there. Uh, so, I mean, let's talk about Star Trek now. The, the most important thing in my life, <laughs> outside <laughs> of my relationships. But hmm. uh, do you remember the first time you, you saw Star Trek or fell in love with it? So I know the first time I saw Star Trek, but I don't remember it because I wasn't even one years old yet. <laughs> um, I know that after reading some like baby diaries when I was a kid that I think one of the first movies I ever saw was my parents took me to see Star Trek for the voyage home in theaters as oh, a wow. baby. Oh, and wow. apparently um, I was a perfectly well-behaved child. I didn't make a sound. I was enraptured. And I feel like that probably heavily imprinted on me. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of the first time I remember watching Star Trek, there was this VHS that a family friend had um, had given my dad to give to me that I think had like Space Seed and maybe one or other one other um, uh, one of the movies, maybe it was Wrath of Khan or uh, or something else or one or two other TOS episodes. Um, and I know that that was probably my first real exposure. And then, of course, I grew up with like all the VHS tapes, my my grandma had a copy of Star Trek three that I would wear out when <laughs> I visited her house. And um, yeah, through that, I would just like get obsessed with it. I, in the age of the DVD, I, I, I you know, I uh, spent all my money in my first job uh, 
at a like bagging groceries at my friend's uh, dad's grocery store on those like hundred dollar DVD box sets of like next gen and mostly DS nine. So that's sort of really how I, how I dove deep into Trek. That's, that's awesome. It made me think that the, uh, like the Columbia house videos, when you said space scene on the VHS yeah, and, and it reminded me like before wrath of Khan came out, you know, not all these episodes were ubiquitous that people mm-hmm. were watching someone had wheeled out like a TV with the VCR in line at the Egyptian or something. And they just had space seat on that people could watch <laughs> before wrath of Khan in 82 came out. And I'm like, that would have been very helpful. Cause I'm we sure didn't have YouTube recap videos. Exactly, then. Exactly. Was, Here's everything you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. This week we're judging Armageddon game, the 13th episode of deep space nine second season. It debuted in syndication on January 30th, 1994. So today marks the 30th anniversary of its premiere. I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I remember turning 30, but uh, it's, I can't believe it's a 30-year-old episode. Do you remember uh, the first time you saw this episode? Um, I think it was when I uh, went through um, the DS9 series. Like I'd watched, I'd watched odd episodes in syndication, you know, when on the on the old family TV when it was coming up because I was probably, I mean, we're probably of similar age. Like I was probably like less than 10 years old when this came out out um but uh yeah that was really when i funny enough season two was one of the last seasons of the show i really binged because for whatever reason when i was snatching up all the dvd box sets season two was sold out or something or like i knew that you know most trek shows get good around season three so i just did that and so it cir- i circled back around to season two so um it was probably around like mid high school when i really watched this episode and it was part of like that big binge of the season as a whole I feel like season two actually works pretty well as a binge because mm-hmm. just in my experience of rewatching them as well. But I wouldn't say they're like really uh, top class, top shelf Star Trek episodes in season two. But I think to your point about shows get good in season three, I think maybe we all need to critically reassess the first couple for DS9 because mm-hmm. at least in the course of us doing our show, I haven't necessarily found that to be the case. I promise listener that's not tipping my hand about this episode, my final <laughs> grade. But uh, yeah, it is. It's interesting to say, I think uh, as watching it uh, first run or when it first premiered, it was, you know, at that point it was like how many years of Star Trek had just been on consecutively. So it was right. more, it felt more like, of a kind with the end of next generation where things were getting maybe not. Yeah. A little stale, like a little predictable and like the formats were a little severe. So sort of removed from that has been an interesting exploration. One of the reasons why I invited you on for this episode Mm -hmm. was you had written a piece for star trek.com a few years ago uh, about basically queering the bromance that between (laughs) uh, Bashir and O'Brien uh, and and I, I think I mentioned this in the email, like the one that I saw for years that was the first one I saw was like, what to binge watch during the lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> I right. like, we were all writing those pieces yeah, in like exactly. April 2020. We're like, well, how can we spin this into content? <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. But I really appreciated just the idea of like, let's think about this friendship a little bit more sort of in like a modern context. Uh, you know, it's obviously from the 90s. So, I mean, this episode really does kick off that friendship between O'Brien and Bashir. Um, so, I, I know I, I'm interested to hear uh, sort of going back and looking at it, especially through the way that we uh, look at episodes, if how that adjusts your perspective on it. But uh, mm-hmm. this was written by Morgan Gendel and Ira Stephen Bear and James Crocker. Story was by Morgan Gendel. He was the one who wrote the inner light for TNG. It was directed by Vinrick Kolb. Mm-hmm. 
Kate Mulgrew's future boyfriend. And <laughs> um, what's this one about? O'Brien and Bashir help two races, the Talani and Kellerin, to neutralize and then dispose of a stockpile of a deadly biological weapon called the harvester virus. However, in order for both governments to ensure no technical knowledge of the weapon can survive, they set out to murder everyone involved in the project, including O'Brien and Bashir, who managed to escape the initial attack down to the planet's surface where they await help from Commander Sisko. And it's in isolation that they get to know each other better. But it turns out O'Brien was infected with that virus during the attack, which complicates the situation and then meanwhile, back on the station, Keiko O'Brien watches footage of her husband dying and suspects it's a forgery for reasons that I, I love very much. And we'll talk about a little bit more. Using the sitcom tropes of the of the hen pecking <laughs> wife uh, for good, uh, which is great. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is an interesting episode. I mean, going back to the article that I wrote for Star Trek.com, it was so funny because, I mean, another, some other great episodes and some other great articles I'm proud of there is that one of my first piece for them was um, a Father's Day piece on um, Cisco's relationship to his son, mm-hmm. um, how I really feel like that's one of the best depictions of fatherhood in science fiction. Um, but yeah, like my piece about O'Brien and Bashir, that was a really interesting perspective to take and people got mad at me for it even oh, though sure. like i did all the hedging in the world i am not saying that o'brien and bashir were were ejecting warp cores or whatever you want to say um it is it is more of a i wanted to explore their relationship their very clear bromance through the through the realm of like homosocial or homo or bordering on homo romantic relationships where there is even if it's not explicit in the text that subtext is there and it does inform their relationship where they are getting things from the other, especially in later seasons as their friendship is, is really tight knit um, things that like begin here. Um, you know, things that like really, really interest me. And especially as a queer person myself, like you can, when you're, especially when you're so starved for, you know, so-called representation, like you see, you take it where you can get it right. Like Star Trek was the thing that originally began slash fiction. Um, and so with, with O'Brien and Bashir, especially here, it's interesting to see the early days of, of them figuring out that these two are really good together. And I think that ties into the ways in which the show developed. You know, we were mentioning earlier about um, how these first two seasons need reappraisal. I agree, because I think in the realm of like Star Trek shows are always bad in the first two seasons. I think that's less um, evident in the first two seasons here. It's just a really good show about a different thing. Mm-hmm. than the rest than the remaining five seasons are like these first two seasons they really wanted to lean into this like into the bajoran culture into into developing these characters and then when they brought in the dominion and the defiant and wharf then it morphed into this like show that it was at its prime but it's great to see sort of like baby ds9 figure <laughs> yes. out what it wants to be <laughs> yeah uh and then just to tie it back into the spock and kirk slash vic the spurk yeah. stuff that in that case it is text you know that right. they're that they love each other very deeply uh the the show and you know Roddenberry didn't really ever deny it but um right. i think and also, yes, of course, obviously, anytime you you make anything seem different from a heteronormative perspective, there's going to be backlash. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think any extenuating circumstance, someone arguing from the heteronormative position about this, you know, well, they're thrust in these life or death situations that bonds anybody. I think mm-hmm. you just you don't use that as a reason why it's not your premise. I think that's to reinforce like, yes, things can cause people to grow close connections to each other 
and find that and through that bonding lower you know whatever social guards are up and see that they have more in common and, and allow their feelings to flow back and forth to each other so if you want to say basically like well they survive life and death together in a situation that's why they have such a deep connection i don't mm-hmm. that that serves your point i think to a larger extent right and i guess to add to that one of the things that i think is important to realize about O'Brien and Bashir's relationship from a queer perspective, and my argument in the article, is that it's less about whether they are, um, you know, to use a PC term, totally gay bones for each other. Uh, and more that about- That is the technical DSM. Yeah, I think that is the, uh, I think that's what they have in the uh, on the GLAAD website. Um, but it's more, it's more about what an audience, whether queer or not, is getting out of their relationship. Because let's get it, let's not get it twisted. These are fictional characters. These are like- Characters in fiction are nothing more than the symbols that we assign to them and um, and what the creator is showing us and the conversation that happens in between. So I think, you know, it's it's possible to open things up to these interpretations and we should be open to that. I, I agree. And I also think, you know, queer and non-queer alike getting into the Alamo from time to time. No, <laughs> yes. Go, go for it. Another I mean, thing- look, like it's the 24th century. You have <laughs> you have holodecks that are basically unspoken like porn factories. People get, can have every single they can wet their whistle in whatever like way they want. I get, it seems like the only boundaries blissfully are like revenge porn or like deep fakes like that one episode where someone tries to pay quark to make like a deep fake kira to sleep with um that's an interesting turn because we have hollow pursuits where barkley is just unashamed unabashedly just recreating the senior officers (laughs) yeah yeah true true oh boy yeah it's pretty wild um uh, but yeah but anyway gene ronberry was a very Horny man. Very and so horny. I think it's possible to view the, I mean, I, I know I wrote another piece elsewhere about how Star Trek, the motion picture is maybe the, is, is one giant interstellar sex act um, for two hours. <laughs> so I just think that the realm of sexuality and its many boundaries um, very much fit in Star Trek, even within it's like sort of prudish nineties TV confines. Yes. So there's the Roddenberry, like Star Trek is a very horny property. And and Rick Berman seems to be a kind of chauvinistically sexual person. (laughs) And so, but also like he does it in the way of like presenting uh, that he's not like, he's almost asexual, but then you look at like the background of how the women on the shows are treated and all that stuff. Like there's something else going on there with the uh, comported polite exterior but you can see the Roddenberry stuff like fighting to get out. Just the Star Trek yeah. premise invites horniness. But along those lines, let's start with how Dr. Bashir's original conception was. Lieutenant yeah. Amaros was the liter- the the premise was what if we put a horn dog on the crew? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and then they cast uh Sidig El Fadil. I believe I'm saying his original screen name is real yeah. birth name correctly. Which is it's- far which is far longer in real life. And then yes. he shortened it to Sidig El Fadil. And yeah. then I think he changed it to Alexander Siddig in season yes. four just to make it even more Americanized. Yes, and uh, but as of this episode, it was Sidig El Fadil and and you know Malcolm McDowell's nephew, by the way. Yes, Malcolm McDowell's nephew, lowest testing cast member maybe in Star Trek history. Yeah, <laughs> and and Rick Berman uh, was basically trying to he fought to keep him around. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to deny that I did not like Doctor Bashir through, through the first season, especially um, 
I think in the second season, I whatevered him in the first run. And as we've been kind of going back through some season two episodes, it's like, oh, no, they did try to make him cooler or like Mm -hmm. more interesting and less obnoxious. But uh, Chief O'Brien was so much like the audience surrogate when he wasn't just representing the everyman in the Star Trek universe that Mm -hmm. this episode, I really do think, helped turn uh, people like me in the audience. I don't proclaim to be a minority here into mm-hmm. like, Oh, well, if chief O'Brien likes him, right. Maybe we should like him. So it's a very powerful episode in turning the tide on Dr. Bashir, I think. Well, because he's also the blankest slate from the beginning. I mean, I think it's evident in the fact that they just changed the character before, uh, before filming with no real thing lost. You know what I mean? Like Lieutenant Amrose, who even is he Lieutenant Bashir, who even is he? But I think he's one of the characters who benefits most and sometimes least from the from the long seven year run of the show, right? Where because he, you know, if you're going to develop a character from some from someone with flaws to someone who overcomes those flaws, you have to watch the flaws first. And so we we get him in the first season, especially, and he's just this like young yammering idiot, this privileged moron who's like never been. He's never had a hard day of work in his life. Um, And like, that's kind of the, like, that's the kind of the thing. Like, you know, one of the original premises for DS9 is if Star Trek is wagon train to the stars, DS9 is gun smoke, where instead of going out, we're going to like sit with this town. And he's definitely the young city doctor who's come to the frontier town to practice what he calls in the pilot, real frontier medicine. And Kira immediately calls him out on the sort of paternalism of that. Um, and so, yeah, the, these first couple seasons, especially sh- see him kind of struggling to fit into the the broader dynamic of the crew. Right. We even get that in a scene uh, midway through, not to go too far ahead. But like w- when Cisco and Dax are discussing him, they talk about him in this way that he doesn't really feel like part of the gang. But, mm-hmm. but they recognize that he always wanted to be able to be part of it. Um, and they recognize kind of that they haven't let him in in that way. So like these first two seasons, especially like. Just as Bashir himself, the character, is trying to find his place on the show, um, so too is uh, Alexander Siddig, like, figuring out his place in the cast. Yeah, it's like, really, Dax was his sole ally, <laughs> like, yeah. with the senior staff. Uh, and then now, then it's O'Brien, yeah. Mm-hmm. A few specific thoughts before we get into the grades here. This was originally conceived of as a Dax and Bashir episode, mm-hmm. uh, and they felt like they had just played that beat too many times, so they switched it up to this. Alexander Siddig highly valued Armageddon game, considering it to be an important episode for Bashir, basically what we're saying, and his friendship with uh, O'Brien. But he said that was the first time I'd been allowed to take a two-hander on the show. Um, that's not done too often because you're essentially wiping out the rest of the cast. You're not giving anyone else anything to do, and you're trusting the show to a couple of actors. I really enjoyed that. And it was the first time I really got to work with Calm Meany. We built our characters' foundational relationships on that show. We got in each other's faces and bickered and had personal things to say about each other. That was one of my most important shows. We are doing this episode as part of our themed uh, two-hander month. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, you know, he's saying it right there in the text. That's why it's this episode's in there. Also the 30th anniversary. I got really obsessed with anniversaries mm-hmm. this year, like trying to get round numbers. Uh, this episode was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Hairstyling for a Series. <laughs> Do you know what oh, won? the hair. The hair in this one, this uh, uh, I'll, I'll say more about later. But do you know what won in that category in in ninety three? No, what the next generation? Huh. So, yeah, <laughs> that was the moment they're like, okay, TNG needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> it was the seventh season, I believe, for TNG. Yeah, so yeah. it all worked, it all worked out. Um, 
Uh, interesting to note, uh, TNG had 58 Emmy nominations and 17 wins. I think they were all technical. Uh, mm-hmm. And DS9 merely had 31 nominations and no wins during its run. Yeah. So. Boo. Uh, any other stray thoughts, general notes, or are you ready um, for the grades? Well, I do find it interesting that we're sort of, because we are talking about this as the first sort of real O'Brien Bashir interaction we've got but um it's worth noting that like in season one they had a two-hander as well in the storyteller storyteller yes um, the dull rock yes yes the the <laughs> but um but i do agree that it is kind of more of an o'brien episode uh, an o'brien subplot with bashir offering acting as support yes um, but it is it is kind of an interesting like it it toys it, it, it sort of tees up ideas that are explored here it establishes that o'brien who is the everyman of the series thinks Bashir is kind of annoying and doesn't like spending time with him. So when they are contrived to spend this time together, um, you know, that that's that source of tension that they eventually have to sort of get over. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it, it's worth it. It's worth noting that they have explored this dynamic in the past. And this is really where I think a breaking point happens for them. Yeah, This is the first time where it's about them. Right, right, as yeah. opposed to some. I mean, they're being. The they're not solving a problem. They yes. are trying to survive together, and exactly. you know, in that idle waiting time, because so much of this episode is them just hiding out in a bunker. Yeah, they have that time to really hash out stuff. All right, so let's get into some great scenes here, and you can throw a flag right off the bat because I'm going to start it off with. I don't have a great scene. I mean, mm-hmm. stuff happens. That's interesting. Yeah, but not until about eleven minutes in, and it's O'Brien and Bashir's first scene of them being on the lamb. They find this bombed out building on the planet Talani, presumably from the war. Uh, Bashir's relieved to find some uh, rations, but O'Brien's like, wait a minute, the Cardassians used to booby trap supplies that were left behind. Mm -hmm. Um, O'Brien beautifully sets up the budgetary restrictions on this episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because in addition to being, being conceived as a Dax and Bashir episode, uh, it was also sort of like a midnight run or like a situation where they're on the run going from village to village or something mm-hmm. to stay ahead. And instead, O'Brien's like, no, we've got to stay put. <laughs> so I really liked that. Just the dramatic. We've only count. got money for the one set. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> He's like, our best shot is staying put and maybe just maybe we'll make it out. That's where he says, uh, you know, Bashir's like, we've got to wait for Cisco to save us. And Bashir's like, that's not really much of a plan. He's just like, I didn't say it was a good plan. <laughs> just what right. we have. Um, and then. And then I think that scene even twists into them finding the radio. Yes. And then O'Brien yeah. off or sorry, Dr. Bashir offering to help because he took some uh, engineering extension course at right. Star- when he was at Starfleet Pinnacle. And it's, it's, worth, it's worth establishing the dynamic here, too, because like I think in a normal situation, if they were both in perfect health, O'Brien would just sort of take charge. Right. But right. in the melee, because, I mean, obviously, like you, you mentioned, you know, they they have been working with these two species who are fittingly enough thematically for the episode two opposing peoples who are choosing to finally work together. Yep. Um, and, but, but basically, you know, once they finally get rid of the harvest, the harvesters, suddenly they are, um, you know, they are uh, attacked and they have to flee. Um, and in the process, uh, O'Brien gets infected by one of the harvesters, the, the mass, the weapons of mass destruction, the big bioweapon. Um, so he's slowly dying and um, he's infirm and he can't really move. Um, so it is up to Bashir to kind of do a lot of this work. So O'Brien has to kind of swallow his pride and tell, you know, and have this ace engineer tell this doctor who's taken an extension course how to fix a transmitter. Um, so that's a a nice mechanical way to get us into the bigger conversations that happen in the episode. 
But do you have any uh, objections to me saying that that is the first great scene, even though we've got no, a shootout? No, no, out and it's good, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a nice, like, little reset. It's a good way to establish the dynamics. It's a good way to, like, show that... Because their animosity is not one side, is not two-sided, right? Like, it's all one-sided. Bashir is this happy, excitable little puppy that wants to be around O'Brien all the time. And that is what annoys Brian O'Brien so much. <laughs> so, like, uh, getting a chance to sort of... Um, force him to spend time with Bashir um, and do these kinds of things is really great. And the bit with like the, the field rations, like that's O'Brien reaching out to uh, that's Bashir reaching out to O'Brien saying, Oh, but I thought you loved field rations. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But not like these guys yeah. field rations. I've been Federation. eating their, <laughs> their foie gras for like a week and I can't, you know, my, my belly's about to burst. So no, thank you. Next great scene I had was Cisco, Kira, Dax and Odo are watching this fabricated security video where O'Brien and Bashir are vaporized. I love how pissed off Kira is. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk to their chief of security. And, yeah. you know, just like they were in charge with taking care of their people and they didn't. And I and I even love how emotional Odo is. I think Rene Bourgeois in the later seasons, Odo mm-hmm. really does get reduced to one note. And, yeah. uh, and he shows, at least right now in season two, in a couple of episodes, like a lot of shades, a lot of like caring you know, and also having fun. Uh, and, and so this is just a version of him where he's like a person, right. Yeah. Instead of, and then I do like Cisco giving some very calm orders after the fact he's commanding. He's, he's a commanding mm-hmm. presence telling everyone to keep their resigned. Everyone's sort of like, everyone's going, each character is going through a different stage of grief. I think in that scene, which is really interesting. Like there's a level of resignation, there's denial, there's anger from Kira. Um, all that kind of stuff. But then, yeah, the way Cisco's sort of resignation to it is, like, you know, because he's just a commander. He knows this part of the job. And so he's just sort of like, OK, well, I know I have to talk to Keiko. And I think well, I think the fact that that sells the tension for the audience too, right? to have them, because I think in a normal episode, they would be like, something's hanky here. Let's investigate. Um, but here, like they have to kind of buy it immediately so that we are we, the audience, are sort of worried about like, well, if they think they're dead, they're not going to go after they're not going to chase after O'Brien and Bashir and try to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that. That is, a, I think, a, a pretty good scene. I also think the video itself, and just you know how abrupt yeah. they're they're vaporized, how and, unceremonious it is. Yeah, yes. they're just zap and they're gone. Yeah, I mean that feels like you know something from the original series, right? How many times do we see someone press a button and people like right. literally the tantalus device? That's yeah, right that from Mirror Mirror. <laughs> Uh, the next great scene I have is back with Bashir and O'Brien. Basically, all the Bashir and O'Brien scenes I thought were some version of pretty great. They're the reason the to watch one. the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Honest, yeah. But this is the, the this is the one where they're talking about marriage versus being single, how being a career officer creates a layer of anxiety, not really there for the non-career. And then it ends with the discovery that O'Brien has been infected by the harvesters. But it's really mostly a Bashir scene. He does kind of step his put his foot in it. By saying yeah. like, well, everyone knows Keika or Mrs. O'Brien. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> O'Brien's kind of annoyed uh, to hear what people are saying about him or what Bashir thinks about him mostly. Yeah. Um, but it was an, it's a nice scene. Good moment. Yeah. For, for Sid. I, I think it, it, it really, um, it really highlights the, the differences in their character, the sort of the, the, the polar dynamics and their double act that I think is really interesting because there are obviously there are, there are specific individual character moments, but there's also in the outside, the context of it, this is um, a friendship forming between a, someone who is coded as like upper class, very privileged Englishman and working class Irishman. And there's a lot of history there. Like, I think mm-hmm. I remember reading in interviews, like they would talk about how they would even like 
uh, Calmini would bring Alexander Siddig to his Irish pubs and like would have to kind of like defend him or whatever. Like, or like he would be watching out because it's like, you know, having an Englishman in an Irish bar, like there is this weird sort of animosity, like that's baked in even before we get into individual character dynamics. So, um, and then when we get into the characters themselves, you know, they are different in age, they are different in employment status or like whatever their status is in Starfleet, you know, Bashir is an officer who is technically outranking O'Brien, but O'Brien is older, more seasoned, definitely knows about more what to do in a crisis, but he's a non-commissioned officer. He's just there to do the job. Yep. And so all of those things sort of uh, bandy about and in these moments of vulnerability kind of come to the forefront. And, um, you know, even interpersonally, when uh, when Bashir, the horndog Lothario bachelor that he they're, they're styling him at at this point in the show is digging at O'Brien for being the boring, settled, married guy. Um, it's a fun way to have those two butt heads. Yep. Uh, the next great scene I have is Dax and Kimira, Dax and Kira commiserating <laughs> over Bashir. Uh, he left Jedzia his diaries so she could understand him better. That was weird. Uh, but yeah, yeah. She said she never read them, which is a nice, like, dramatic wah wah. Like, oh, I never got around to it. But yeah. Court comps them with drinks and then compliments O'Brien and Bashir for being good customers and ends mm-hmm. with the toast. I thought it was a nice scene. You know, we know that they're not dead, but it's nice seeing how they all think about them. And it's a good scene for them, especially in the series, especially for Bashir, who has been such a vestigial element of everything. Like he does feel like a tag along for a lot of this point in the series. So it's nice to have a moment where it's like, oh, these people think he's it's a very like Mark Twain kind of moment. Right. Like if. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, yep. Um, I I I also like, you know, I think in the pilot, uh, Bashir is definitely trying to nerdily come on to jadzia and cisco's like does he know how old that thing is inside you or you got that thing inside (laughs) and she's basically like treating him like he's a little boy and whatever so i kind of like this maybe not as a payoff so much as just a continuation a very star trek thing of like Mm -hmm. you know some people can be offended or put off or whatever but she has all this experience in life and she's kind of amused by him and just to see that she like took the diaries maybe as part of all that but like Mm -hmm. with some degree of care she's like i understand where this young little boy is coming from and all that stuff it's kind of more of a friendship and and it sort of comes through in that moment i thought and also yeah, and Quark the, is great. I love Quark. So it's a very Ferengi way to pay <laughs> yes. homage to somebody. Like that's that's like paying your respects is like, oh, he was a great customer. Great customer. Always paid yeah. his bills on time. Um and yeah, when when Jedzia says that line, I never read them, there's this like there's this lament, there's this sort of uh, you know, this mourning there that I think is a really interesting idea. It's 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 it to me speaks to the idea of like whenever you know, someone we deeply care about or someone we someone we deeply care about, but maybe didn't give the time of day in mm-hmm. life passes. And then we think about all the things that, um, you know, they gave us or, you know, oh, we were go- we were going to get around to doing this thing. And then we never did, um, you know, just sort of that recognition of like you didn't appreciate that person in life and now they're gone. Yeah. Um, so it's I, I think it's a fun little moment. The next great scene I have is <laughs> Keiko. Demanding to see the station <laughs> commander. <laughs> it's yes. watching the security video. And she says, my husband never drink. I know my husband. He does not drink coffee in the afternoon. <laughs> she carries her way into this ready room and uh, and saves the day. I mean, it's a, it's a very sort of murder. She wrote Columbo old school, like detective kind of moment. I think it's great. 
Um, I think it's nice to give Keiko something to do that isn't whining about being there. Yes. Um, I think she deserves more than that. She deserves better than that. I actually got to interview Rosalind Chow like a couple years ago. Uh, and we got Very to talk cool. about like the reception of Keiko in the fan base, like especially at that time. And it kind of felt like, you know how in, at the height of Breaking Bad, people hated Anna Gunn. Um, like people would send like terrible things to Anna Gunn because they hated her character Skylar because instead of seeing her rightfully as the voice of reason, um, who's trying to figure out what her like husband is doing behind her back. Um, she was just the dumb shrew who was ruining everyone's fun. And that kind of feels like the, the reception Keiko got. So it was nice to see her get to do things like save the day or save her husband or um, not spend complain. an entire episode. <laughs> yeah. Not complain. <laughs> spend an entire episode terrorizing O'Brien while being possessed by a Bajoran fire demon. Um, <laughs> those are really fun things for an actor to do. And um, yeah, like, so that was, that was a great thing I got to talk to her about. And like, I think this is one of those great moments where like her, her henpecking powers are being used for good. Yes. Um, <laughs> Am I wrong? Is her first appearance data's day? Where the first time we meet her, she's saying, I don't want to get married. I think so. Yeah, think, because they, they, that was maybe they didn't was... build up a relationship no. for her and O'Brien. He wasn't no. important enough in TNG to do that. This is just more about because it's not even their episode. It's Data's episode. Like, yeah, they, yeah, they introduce her there. And um, yeah, it's just so interesting. But I, I so my recollection for Keiko growing up, just watching her first time is I always liked her. And it's like sort of. The, then there would be times where she'd be pushing against the ball, right? She'd be like, why yeah. isn't she participating in Star Trek? But I always liked her. So, it, but I, in the rewatching, it's like, why are they having her only do this? Why right. is this the only thing she can do? And then, it, yeah, it is really nice. But I love the scene, the other details of like, this is what makes Star Trek great. This is when you have a very limited budget. And it's like, what is the most we can do in the scene? So she, Karen's yeah. in, she's like, they're, and they're all gently saying, well, maybe that's not coffee. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe there are extenuating circumstances. And then they don't call her crazy, not even behind her back when she leaves. Mm-hmm. All Cisco does is like, well, what can I do here that doesn't directly address any concern I might have? He just says, when were you planning to go pick up the runabout, Dax? Well, why don't we just go now? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So it's all very simple, but also everyone thinking top of mind, understanding right. this person's impact. To be fair, she brings the receipts, but it also feels like a, a low key kind of like uh, anti-vaxxer TikTok energy where it's like, <laughs> hold on. Did you see that this person's yeah. here? It's clearly a deep fake. Um, but no, like even even looking at the chemical composition of the liquid in the cup, like that kind of thing, like yeah. it's her doing her homework and doing some detective work um to suss out the fake like um yeah it's great it's it's nice to have her uh sniff out fake news it raises a lot of questions that i'm i'm just gonna keep i'm gonna bring up hopefully at some point about the the kellerin and talani's plan here so yeah (laughs) okay it's so dumb uh and then i have two more great scenes like two and a half but feel free to interject o'brien asks julian this is after the harvester virus is really messing with him and he's cold and he can't really do anything. But he asks O'Brien, he asks Bashir about the one that got away. Yeah. Cause in the previous scene, they were talking about Bashir eyeing all the women and you know, O'Brien can't cause he's married in this one. But then he mentions there was one he was crazy about police Delon, a ballerina uh, who had great arches and uh, yeah. offered her father offered him. I'm a sure position. she was very flexible. Yeah. Very flexible. Yeah. Um, and, but he dreamed for adventure and he left for Starfleet and he says he wakes up in the middle of the night <laughs> wondering, yeah. will I ever find someone that wonderful again? 
Uh, and so this this is where I want to kind of tie it back into your article. And mm-hmm. I think you make a great great case about like what is like heteronormative expected. I think men talking about women is a very heteronormative thing. Mm-hmm. But here's where I I guess this is where I'm trying to thread a needle and I'll probably still sound, wind up sounding like a pig. <laughs> this is what men can do where it isn't supposed to feel like a like it's wrong. And maybe it's because in this scene, they're not being gross about how they're talking about the one, the woman in question. And in the previous yeah. scene, they weren't really, he wasn't really being all that gross. He's like, I don't know if you noticed, but Talani women are hot, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Right. Uh, and that's kind of the extent of it. And, and I think most of the time men maybe take it too far. That's for sure. But I think mm-hmm. if he was talking to Dax, let's say, you know, he would bring that up and she would probably say, Oh, is that all you can think about? Or like, there's more mm-hmm. to like, you know what I mean? Like it would be immediately called on to what we're talking about. And sometimes I think just the the homosocial aspect of all homosocial relationships is that everyone gets has a common ground. Hi, I'm talking about woman right now. You're talking about a woman right now. That's great. Right, right. And and O'Brien even being curious about it still. Um, straight men or you know bi men, what pan men, whatever they talk about women. It's a thing that happens. Um, and for so sure. I and I think it's all about how you talk about it. Right. Exactly. It, it, and and I think the in the case of Bashir, there is this wistful romanticism. It's not like, oh, man, I could have totally, you know, I could have totally screwed her. But, you know, like it, it, I'm just thinking about like the hot ballerina that you almost screwed and then like didn't in Starfleet Academy. That's not that's not how it reads. You know, it's it's more like, oh, I could have seen myself settling down with her. And it is it is positioned against that and the adventure of Starfleet. And he chose yes. that. Um, and so it feels more like it feels more about that. And then I think it frames his, you know, erstwhile, you know, sketchily uh, presented sort of Lothario instincts as this compensation for that. Like where it's like, totally. OK, well, you know, yep. well, if I'm going to go adventuring, I'm going to go adventuring. You feel me? Um, and so so much of it feels like posturing. It kind of feels like Bashir doesn't even believe himself when he says that kind of stuff. Um I mean, I I, the if the modern version of this scene, there's like there's like you can't talk about feet now. <laughs> it's like that would be <laughs> drawing too much attention. Oh, Bashir's a foot guy. No, I just <laughs> right, right, it, it right. didn't. He, it wasn't foot fetish dude coded. Just, just pulling it, pulling out a pad full of like yeah, AI exactly. generated That's lolicons. Right. That's like... right. <laughs> Very few things survived the post-atomic horror on Earth, but Footopedia did. And I asked, <laughs> I asked Dolly to render Supergirl with huge knockers. Um, right. Just like boom, boom, awooga. Um, <laughs> it is so interesting good. that police never gets mentioned again. There's no ties to it. In yeah. all the in all the moments, they like kind of spin their wheels about what to do with Bashir, and what they do land on is incredibly interesting. That mm-hmm. he's been genetically modified and all that stuff. Why none of that somehow landed in his journals, or he was careful enough to excise them before giving them to yeah. Dax? Interesting, raises some points. But I've always been of two minds about that reveal because it does change so much about his character. Because like. You know, before we knew that, I feel like we understood Bashir as this man of privilege who kind of is aware enough of his privilege that he wants to run towards adventure and uh, and everything else to sort of justify his find purpose as a human being. You know, whereas now he's always been this super being um, who's had to tamp down his greatness to keep up with everyone else. And I think sometimes that 
does disrupt a lot of the stuff we learned about him in these early seasons, like with the police Delon thing, like, um, you know, what, what was he thinking about that whole time? Or like, you know, the moment, the moment when Cisco's talking about how like, Oh, I don't know how to contact his parents. Um, and like knowing who his parents are now, it, it, it's such an interesting thing to revisit. Yeah. And I, I always mention that shows are alchemy and they're made they're the, all the forces and stresses, Sometimes they, they just kind of wing it and it's a feeling and it feels like, yeah. you know, it felt like this fits. I think it maybe could, but it's like, yeah, you have to kind of do a little work to make it all yeah. fit. You know, it happened to him when he was so young, right? He was a, yeah. like six or seven or something. There's a, a belief that it's just a part of him that he kind of doesn't think of as front of mind. So mm-hmm. then you've got the intelligence that's there, but it's clashing with he's still a person, like a young person growing up. And like mm. awkward, his parents didn't seem like smooth operators. You know what I mean? Right. So like it'd be an awkward socializing thing that he had to learn as well. I don't know. Then, I, I agree with no, you, but, that, but I'm also but saying. But think about the salutatorian story, right? Like a central part of back of Bashir's backstory is that he was in Starfleet Academy. He could yes, have been valedictorian, but he missed mm-hmm. one. He, he oh, 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 can I, can I get it right? Can I get it right? He mistook a pre-ganglionic fiber for a post-ganglionic nerve. Nailed it. Um, and then... Later on, like midway through, like season three, when he has that episode where he's sort of in a prison of his own mind, I think like there's that monster who like reveals that he missed that on purpose right? because he didn't want the pressure of being valedictorian. I thought that was more interesting. But with the augment reveal that retcons that to be like, oh, I needed to not be valedictorian to stay under the radar. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't so overtly excellent to so as to raise suspicion. And so that like, but then that nullifies the, so then why is he so broken up about it? If he knows why he did it, if it was such a conscious choice, as opposed to the subconscious, like fear of success that was sort of the canon of that before. I it's such if an interesting thing. Yeah. I, but I wonder if there's psychological text to say it is both like he, he's self self-consciously subconsciously sabotaging himself because when he got this, he was like, really, it was really beaten into him. Like you can't, let people know. And so it's come and gone. Maybe, maybe that was a thing as a young person where it just would come in flashes, right. Of like, Oh, right. I can't, I got to remember I'm this way. I got to, I can't do it. And it would create these weird social dynamics or, or situations where he'd make odd decisions where he thinks he's trying to throw people off the scent. And so maybe Starfleet just made the most sense. He's like, this is where exceptional people go and I can be mostly exceptional there. I don't know. Perhaps. I mean, I think so. I think that's possible. I think for me, it just robs of it of its more interesting wrinkle. Like, I think that's plausible, but less interesting. Also, just he's been lying to his friends for all these years. That's right. That's That's the bigger thing. He's lying to O'Brien in this moment, really. Yeah. Um, But I mean, I do just the idea that this poor guy, I mean, who among us have not felt so lonely? (laughs) But waking up in the middle of the night going, what have I done? Why didn't I screw that ballerina? Um, Which, you know, I guess in the post-scarcity future of Star Trek, a lot more people can just like be ballerinas now, right? Like, because you don't have to work for a little I would hope. Yeah. Why That doesn't, I mean, why not? I mean, hopefully it's not as uh, abusive. Right, of course. And this is not to say that like there aren't ballerinas who make incredible careers out of it. I'm just saying that like the barrier to entry is probably way lower or at least the the incentive where it's like if you could be reasonably certain if you didn't have to depend on doing ballet to live. Yeah. um, A lot more people would be willing to risk getting into it. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, uh, this is this has been a podcast about uh, ballet <laughs> to people who have never done a day of it in their lives. That's um, right. <laughs> Plie, marry, kill. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. then the last great scene I have, well, one and a half. O'Brien yeah. telling Bashir marriage is the greatest adventure of, of them all, but it's a journey worth taking because you take mm-hmm. it together. So this is when he's like ready to die um, mm-hmm. or right before it. Uh, and this is before then the rest of the episode is kind of like, whatever we find out that Talani and Kelleran are working together. It's not like a war. They're not warring. They're trying to wipe out all evidence of it. So I don't really have, and then there's like this weird shell game because you've got the two runabouts, which mm-hmm. I will, I'll talk about maybe in a second, but the la- I think the last scene is great because we get the whole Bashir saying, Hey, before they almost killed us, before we got beamed away, you said it was an honor serving with you. Well, it was an honor. I want to say it's been an honor serving with you. And then mm-hmm. Keiko can't believe that O'Brien kind of likes Bashir. And then we <laughs> we get the end. Uh, you know, a, a cup of coffee would sound good right now. And yeah, Keiko says, yeah. you, you never drink coffee in the afternoon. Sure I do. You do? <laughs> I wonder, like, the sitcom music, like, the All in the Family oh. music start playing after that. Like, and, like, her to, like, cross her arms and turn to the camera. O'Brien. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it was the music was trying to go there too. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was pretty great. Well, the, you know, that's the thing. Like you know, much like with O'Brien and Bashir, the show as a whole. I think, in even someone has said this in interviews, it's a great male bonding show. It is a show about friendships and like forming those friendships. And sometimes I feel like the O'Brien Bashir relationship gets diluted sometimes by the Garrick Bashir relationship. Like we're, we're suddenly Bashir has two besties to juggle. Um, but I think this is a good example of, of the O'Brien Bashir one, like the things that they get from one another, like this sort of frisson of like, of, of, of clashing personalities that creates this beautiful magic. They talk about women. They fix yeah. something. All I was missing was like a, like a beer. Yeah, yeah. Well, You're really maybe, maybe there was one of the basic. rations, but O'Brien That's wasn't going to have it. Yeah, yeah. Down, yep. <laughs> uh, I guess they could have, they shared a pint uh, after coming down from the the Battle of Britain. That's right. Um, yeah. All right. So, best trek tropes then, or did I miss any other great scenes you wanted to call out? Um, no, I think that's pretty much it. Cause that's yeah. the thing. It is such a like sort of like, you know, a simple two hander bodily kind of episode that like so many of them just take place in that one location. And like, yeah, I don't think there's anything else. that's like really all that revolutionary. All right. So I, I want you to go first then for best Trek tropes. What do you want to highlight here? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I mean, I suppose the two races at war, um, who also just look virtually identical. Uh, I, think that's <laughs> I was great. like, how did they distinguish them? And it's like one is wearing gray sweaters and the other is wearing brown sweaters. And and they <laughs> each have like, you know, I love when rate when an entire race of people just settle on a hairstyle that's and right. are like, this is how we know we're us, right? Um, so like, and all the, cause like, it's so difficult to describe, like, cause the, the Talani and the Kelleran, they both have different takes on the same sort of crappy hairstyle right where there's these twisty <laughs> horns these like twisty horny braids like they're all bright of frankenstein they all just i feel like the <laughs> emmy emmy board thought it was an award for most hairstyling for a series um and that's why they got the nomination that's exactly right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but i th- i did think the setup was interesting on along that trope because mm-hmm. we kind of get thrown into it where they're trying to get rid of these harvesters in a in a gene bath but like the Federation has been asked to help them get rid of these biological weapons. And these two 
people have come together and they're like, we want to get rid of the stockpile entirely. It's weird that they're sending Dr. Julian Bashir of Space Station Deep Space Nine to yeah. like get rid of these weapons, help devise a method. Yeah. So it's a two or three hundred year war or, or mm-hmm. longer than that, maybe. And the the harvesters took 10 years to perfect my my thought when I first watched it and almost for 30 years was like the harvesters have been used in the war. That's Mm -hmm. that's the implication, but that's not the reality, I guess. So the harvesters Mm -hmm. at some point became a part of this conflict. And maybe it was once they were introduced that the both the two sides were like, okay, we got to stop this. This is this is too Mm -hmm. much. So somewhere in the last hundred years or 50 years, the harvesters came to fruition and then a Bashir is able to knock it out in a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get rid of it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's Star Trek for you, yeah. right? Like well, the Enterprise so pops saying. into a planet and, and can fix an entire civilization in like 45 minutes. That is pure best Trek trope. You, you've absolutely nailed it because yeah. I like when Star Trek does that. I Call me, a, I guess, a colonizer or something. I don't know. But yeah, it's like, anyway. I like when they go. I like when Kirk goes and blows up the war computer. And says, you guys got to figure it out yourself. And I like that Bashir just put his mind to it. And Mm -hmm. O'Brien had some coffee and they stayed up all night for a week and they figured it out. Yeah, yeah. Very Star Trek. Oh, I thought of some other great Trek tropes, right. um, namely the fighting style. You know, yes, whenever I they have... get into the fisticuffs, yep. um, that that classic '90s Trek fight choreography that is very clearly inspired by the Shatner fight choreography, but a little bit elevated. But it's always like the same three moves, right? It's always the double punches. Yep. They're both like they're holding their hands together, and then like it ends with like a little double-handed uppercut, so that the guy, the stuntman, can like fling his legs up as he falls. Yep. Um, yeah, always well, great stuff. O'Brien, when he fights for the gun and gets it, he does that roll. Yeah, it's out roll, of the way of the fire, and then low roll. Yep. This year so gets grabbed instead of shot at, and he uses his elbow in the gut, and then a, yep. the, the, the punch to the face. Yep. You see uh, Kira do that, so I had Starfleet fighting in there for sure. Uh, come on, engineering extension courses at Starfleet Medical. Right. Any time they mention an extension course, I'm like, I think they even make a joke out of it. Wow, you learned a lot in that extension course. Right, like right. later on in one of the shows, they mentioned that uh, ex- these extension courses are as valuable than the core curriculum. It sounds like. Well, I've got. A, can you speak Klingon? Yeah, I've got a 30 day Duolingo streak. Like. <laughs> It's great. Oh, uh, the the guns too. The guns uh, would later get retrofitted for the Jem'Hadar guns, I think, right? They were cool guns. I also mm-hmm. noticed that the computer sounds on the Talani Science Lab mm-hmm. would wind up being the Voyager computer beeps. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was interesting. Uh, I think the, the Kelleran ship or whatever, the Talani ship has been reused. Yes, it seems. It well. looks like the Tamarian vessel now that you mention it from yeah. Darmok. That's right. Um, that's right. Uh, this is a DS9 specific trope, and I'm mm. counting it, but Quark hitting on Kira, which they yeah. get away from to the show's great loss, I feel. <laughs> but he when he brings the drinks to them and says they're on the house and she's like, why are you being thoughtful or why are you doing this? And then he has a little exchange with Jadzia and then he turns back to Kira and he goes, I can be thoughtful. He, and his eye just kind of lingers. He's like, I just want you to know I'm down and I'm a good guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wonder if they, they shied away from that as they started to realize that they wanted Kira and Odo to be together, or at least Odo to have the unrequited feelings for, for, for Kira, because I feel like that probably would complicate their dynamic a little bit too much. Probably. If it, was, I just, if it was infused with like a weird jealousy over the same woman. 
I, di- I guess what I'm saying is I didn't need them to hook up. I just, yeah. I liked that Quark was always, always make clear I'm interested in you. Yeah, right. But, and right. I think that does get lost. It kind of goes away. And remember at some point he's like in on like, well, Dax is available. Yeah. Even though she's Esri, I'm in. Um, but yeah. uh, <laughs> no, for sure. I'm of two minds about, oh, I have one more that's a straight up one. Trust. I already mentioned this. They just trust mm-hmm. Keiko O'Brien on one statement. That's a very mm-hmm. Star Trek trope. Like, hey, you're in the club. We trust right, right. we're going to give you a fair shake here. But then I'm of two minds of this because I think I've previously put the rules of acquisition as a best trick trope, but I don't know, especially mm-hmm. for this particular one. Good customers are as rare as latinum. Treasure them. Uh, rule 57. And, and you highlighted that as being a part of a great scene, and I agree. But, I mean, we all agree that the Ferengi stuff and is a little... It's it's like absurdly reductionist and borderlines unoffensive sometimes. For also, sure. But I, I think for me, it's easier because the characters are very explicitly written in the text to be horrible creeps. Yes. Um, so at least the, the show recognizes it enough. It's not valorizing it. I guess I, I'm also a little annoyed that it's the 57th rule. Seems yeah, like it would be higher on their like it's like the having customers is a central tenant of their high, their whole enterprise. They're, they're, yeah, it seems like it'd they be waited till then. Yeah, yeah, to figure it out. They remembered. Right? Rem- always remember, young yeah. child, the 99th rule of acquisition. It's always better to make money than to lose money. <laughs> oh, right. That's right. Uh, yeah, do you right. have any worse Trek tropes? Um, maybe the uh, the techno babble. It, reason why sensors are down or commu- communications are down oh, there's like yeah. at the very end right there's like uh i think the, the the memory alpha says it's a broadband inversion that like wipes out communications and short range sensors so there's always like because in a world with futuristic te- technology with sensors so detailed it can figure out the chemical composition of a drink in a deep fake um how is it that you can play like a shell game how do you hide anything there's always got to be a nebula or some random interference or an ion storm or something like that to conveniently limit people's ability to detect you so that you can uh, get away with your fantastic plans also how are you able to blanket a sensor beam but not a, a remote piloting beam Right. <laughs> my, uh, my microwave knocks out my Bluetooth. It doesn't take very much to like, to mess up a remote <laughs> signal, I would think. The shell game also is really weird. I mean, I like that they tried it, but also it they they must have. It's a big Starfleet planning uh, right. because Cisco is communicated with by Dax, who says, will you join me on the Ganges to look at this stuff? But it's very clear now in retrospect, like he was not on the Ganges. So like he beamed back to the Rio Grande and, and it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> he and Dax were planning this. That's weird. That like, it's just like, that's all just yeah. for plot contrivance. It's, yeah. It's the elaborate thing because it's not enough to, to win the day. You have to look clever while doing it. So they have <laughs> to contrive <laughs> these like really, the, you have to make your characters look clever. Like it has to be this unique solution. It can't just be, well, we're in two runabouts. Like we could just like destroy your ship if we wanted to. Right. Um, and, and also, it's just weird. The whole Talani Kelleran plan, because even then they're like, well, we're going to blow up the runabout then with you with all four of you on it. And it's like, yeah, so you are really, going to start really... a war with the Federation. <laughs> I know. That's the thing. Like their whole plan is like, OK, they're because they're, the whole reason it, it ends up being like, you know, an Occam's razor kind of situation where they are on the level. They are working together, but they're like, well, 
we got rid of all the harvesters, but we do kind of have to kill everyone who ever knew about it, including you, including so thus causing an intergalactic incident. Right. Right. Like it's so it's so contrived and I don't know what their their plan A was. Was this the plan A? Well, plan they, A was just wipe later. Every, yeah, plan A was wipe everyone out, send the fake footage, and, the, and then it's all resolved. We're like, we're cool with that, but like, yeah. our it's just our people. We can't figure it out on our own. We're going to need Starfleet. It's like, oh, <laughs> fine, but only if they bring their senior officers. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> the kind right. of people they will go after. Like, you know, it's so, yeah, it's so contrived. Most of its time quality. Well, you mentioned one of mine, which was that the the most hairstyle is yeah. basically why they got the Emmy Award. Everyone looks like they stuck their finger in a light socket and mm-hmm. their hair just bolted back like a cartoon. But I did have one more, which was I think this is you see it a lot more now. But I think this has to be one of the earlier times where anxiety is presented in like a normal way. Bashir's whole thing about uh, career officers we don't want to be worried about people worrying about us. Hmm. It's like a weird, it's like not a weird thing, but like today there would be whole episodes written around anxiety, right? It would be a big thing. So I'm going to say this very minor introduction that actually the people who are worried about us, well, we're worried about them too. Maybe that's in response to, you know, this is post Iraq war one. You know what I mean? Like some idea of like, yeah, when I'm over there, I'm worried about you over here. And it's just like an idea that finally filtered in to the consciousness. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch all of MASH, to be honest. So I don't know <laughs> if that was ever an issue. But, you know, every military story is basically about the people in the shit. And then the people at home worrying about them are the people at home worrying about them. And here's one where it's like, yeah, I'm worried about the people I care about. You know, and, then, mm-hmm. and if I were to create if I were to create a situation where more people were concerned about me, that would bother me, too. Uh, so I just thought that was of its time. For sure. I think the of its time quality that jumps out to me is more um, more visual, like especially for these first couple of seasons, these first three seasons, I think, had the same cinematographer and then they switched it up for season four. Um, but season three has this sort of like hazy Vaseline filter over it that yes. looks like seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> And uh, so like that sort of jumps out to me. And I think it's also a consequence of the fact that um, this is one of the shows that doesn't have an HD um, upgrade yet. Not yet. There's Uh, been some rumblings that Paramount's getting bids. No, they did. They spent a lot of money doing it for next gen. And then they were like, well, that was too expensive. And no one bought the DVDs because streaming happened right after. So I don't know. Um, Yeah. I mean, I hope that someone can do it. I know there's like, there's YouTube channels um, that do like AI 4k, like, uh, upgrades of shows like Farscape. Yeah. Um, so I'd I be think, curious to see how that would work. Yeah, I would be too. I mean, hopefully the compromise if they have to is do a, a real uh, remaster of the live action stuff and then up the VFX, which is not a good idea, but well, maybe... cause it's tough because like the, the CG stuff was like rendered in, in SD. So right. it's not even you would have to just redo it all over again. I think that's what they did for that documentary. Right. Uh, maybe, but also I seem to recall that there were some elements that were still around that, that were easier to up res based off the, I don't, you know, it's like, I hear a bunch of different stories, but yeah, right. it's, it would be a huge project, but yeah. Uh, I would say that though, that this one didn't look so bad because they had that green screen of the planet in the lab in the background the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain things that kind of worked. I thought the runabout 
all that stuff that looked pretty solid. So, but this is definitely like everyone making Star Trek has been making it for a long time. Everyone's in their, right. you know, in their, they're all stretched out and comfortable. And it was like a pretty solid up the middle uh, product here. Yeah, exactly. Now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. <laughs> O'Brien, I suppose another day won't kill me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you only knew. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just wait till you get like decades of prison time zapped into your brain, man. That's right. Uh, but you go ahead. Do you have any other? Great lines? Um, I, more. I mean, uh, I think the I want to die on my feet is kind of fun. Oh, I guess it was hell. Um, you can see for yourself. The man never stops talking like <laughs> that, that fun little way to deflect. The, like he, he wants to deny like that. He actually like had a good time <laughs> yeah, this year. Yeah. All things considered, like, you know, he he treasured his like, you know, he found some common ground and everything, but he has to like he has to no homo it a little bit. <laughs> um, I think those are lines. That, and but I think the one that sticks out to me for some reason is I never read them. Like, I think I like I like uh, Terry Farrell's delivery of that line. Yeah. Uh, and I, to go back to your point about uh, in the scene where they're watching the security video, everyone is grieving in their own way. And it's like she's quiet in that scene. She hardly mm-hmm. says anything. She's just like asking what her orders should be. And mm-hmm. but she's really silent. And that this is like a continuation of that emotional uh, state. And that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two I have are when. <laughs> Bashir's like, oh, great, a med kit. And the and O'Brien rushes over and he goes, wait, the Cardassians used to rig supplies they left behind with pressure grenades. I've seen more than one soldier permanently lose his appetite that way. So mm-hmm. I don't know, just like the, like a nice artful way of putting <laughs> someone get blown up. Uh, and then when he's dying or, you know, he's talking about, he goes, listen to me, Julian, you're always talking about adventure. Well, marriage mm-hmm. is the greatest adventure of all. It's filled with pitfalls and setbacks and mistakes. But it's a journey worth taking because you take it together. Uh, I'm not like a newlywed, but, you know, being married, it's like, yeah, that that makes sense. That something that when I was a a little kid watching this just bounced right off of me has completely new resonance uh, 30 years later. No, exactly. No, it's it's a really nice, nice moment for them. Uh, The Anton Caridian Award for Best Performance. Who, Who do you have? Um. I mean, I think it has to be Kalmini. I mean, because I think he has to do so much. He, I mean, Bashir is is doing some nice work as well as uh, Alexander Siddig, but Kalmini, like he is putting so much in all the while he has to play that he's dying slowly. And his is the character journey that needs the most work and, and dynamism where like he has to go from begrudging like, hey, you know, we're doing this job and I don't like you very much to we're on the lamb to I need you. Um, but I can't admit that I need you, um, to survive. And also like, I, I want you around like that, that kind of journey I think is really solid. I think that's probably the, the pick for the best performance for me. Yeah, I'll go with that. I had, uh, Alexander Siddig, but I think you're, you're right. Because when you look at it at the end of the day, like Dr. Bashir doesn't change in this episode. He's just yeah. like a little puppy. He's like, I'm going to be myself this whole time. And maybe you'll like me at the end. <laughs> right. It's called meaning being like, ah, I don't hate puppies that much. It's fine. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so the Shatner who really went for it, not necessarily bad acting. I'm going to jump the line and just say, I'm giving it to Susan Moss. Candace Neal, Ron Smith, and Gerald J. Solomon, the hair department who received the Emmy nomination for this episode. They really went for it with those hairstyles. They really, really did. I think my pick is going to have to be Rosalind Chow. Like you can tell that she's like 
that, that she is an actress was like, finally, something that is that is that is not just like nagging, a non nagging <laughs> subplot for me. Let's go for it. And like, well, well I guess he, she is she's nagging for good. She's nagging yes. for a good cause. So um, but she's having fun with it. And I I, I like the, I like her scenes. I like her scenes with her and Colmini, especially at the end. I like them, too. I, I don't I didn't like her scene with Cisco, but that was not nothing to do with her or either of them. It was just a very flatly written scene where he goes and reports that, you know, she's dead. And she's like, I'd like to be alone, please. Right. Um, yeah. So that would have been a scene to put Molly in there just to remind us that. Oh, yeah, they have a child. <laughs> they have a child. This is a big deal. Yeah. But they, I guess they didn't. They're just like, we just need At some to point, she's going to become a cave lady. Yeah, exactly. Um... <laughs> uh, what part of this episode will they teach at Starfleet Academy? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, I suppose uh, the finer points of uh, harvester maintenance. <laughs> I uh, think this is a screaming endorsement for the extension courses. <laughs> right? <laughs> you never you know when you'll need it. That's uh, right. <laughs> uh, certainly the harvester. Well, they can't put any knowledge of the harvester down, right? That's yeah. going to cause a big uh, galactic, <laughs> intergalactic incident. Um, I think it's going to be more of like a home ec course. Um on for the, the virtue <laughs> for gene baths well yeah no i i you know gene baths are what i use when i need to clean my levi's but um <laughs> i think no i think for uh for the finer points of like coffee timing um <laughs> like just <laughs> when when should you how should you manage your caffeine intake and how do you schedule that out um, uh, secret codes between spouses <laughs> yes yes indeed could this episode have been hornier and would that have made it better I'm of the impression that everything can be hornier. And um, <laughs> of course, I think this um, we could have, uh, you know, played the true Armageddon game of who's in my mouth. But, um, you know, I think uh, I mean, obviously, I, I don't think it would have made it better, but I would have made it more fun. And uh, if just like O'Brien, I'm sure like, well, this could be our last moments on Earth. <laughs> I'll harvest something else for me. From uh, so. Yeah, the, I think that's the point is like it could have been hornier without it made it better. I don't <laughs> I don't think, I don't think no. so. Like the only thing I had was like it might have been a little funny if Bashir had been like keeping watch and either as a mirage or really seen like a woman in the village or something. That yeah. might have been the only thing that you could have done because he was just talking about how he thought Talani women were hot. But oh, that's God. about it. That's yeah. About, yeah. Couldn't really think about it. All right. So oh. Trek, marry or kill Armageddon game. Clint, please. I think I might have give it a trek. Like I think it's a solid enough episode. I don't think it numbers among the the annals of great Star Trek or even like great television. But I think within the context of, I think it's an important stepping stone for O'Brien and Bashir. I think it's an interesting one off episode, one off adventure for this show that's still finding its footing. I just don't think it's like anything crazy to write home about. But it has these moments that I like. Totally agree. Very solid. I like to reserve my Marys for like. I'll remember it very clearly, but also right. it's like great TV on top of it. And I'm this is throw this one on randomly, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, the last time I saw this before I put it on our schedule was randomly. It was on Tubi or Pluto okay. TV. It was on Pluto TV one night mm. and I just was watching. And I'm like, this is actually better than I remember it. And uh, and just kind of like watching it some more again. All that stuff when you're a kid that doesn't resonate. And the stuff that did this time was interesting. Yeah. Um, what is the worst episode you've covered on the show so far? Well, what immediately springs to mind for me right now is we'll always have Paris, but that's not mm -hmm. quite it. We were uh, next uh, encounter at Farpoint. Also not yeah. good. 
Um, and surprisingly, Kristen didn't really like Caretaker. I like the first mm-hmm. half of Caretaker, but the second half really sucks. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's it does a good job of setting up characters, but its central premise is yeah. pretty wonky. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When you think of a bad episode, what right off the bat jumps to mind? Um, I mean, a good portion of stuff in Next Generation's first season, of course, and then yeah. a little bit in the second, um, you know, apart from Shades the counter, far point of Shades of Grey. Oh, Shades of Grey. <laughs> I covered Shades of Grey for another podcast, uh, and it, that was a fun old time. Yeah, the movie, the, the episode that was made for five freaking dollars. Um, <laughs> in terms of bad DS9 episodes, I think, uh, obviously, I think some of the as big a fan I am of the Frankie comedy episodes. There's that one where Cork ends up in drag that I'm like a little profit and lace, on. I think, is profit and lace. Oh, fascination. The one where everyone gets the horny disease where like, <laughs> like basically they, they end up getting like like uh, infected with milf dust, basically, because Lawaxana shows up and is going through uh, betazoid menopause, which means everyone around her becomes horny. Um and it just plays with this really horrible farce. Yeah, that one contains the classic sitcom trip of getting stuck in an elavator. And then Odo has to... No, that's ra- the first season one. I like that one. I'm oh, talking about the one in the third in season the- where everyone's oh, in love okay. with each other. I don't remember that one at all. We found one I don't remember at all. Fascination. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, a, it's a really bad season three episode where like everyone's... Every, like people are perving on all the wrong people. And it's really... <laughs> uh, like it's it's just so funny that like DS9 has this reputation. And justifiably so is like the darkest Star Trek, right? It deals with war and heavy issues and genocide and all this stuff but it is also the one that most explicitly leans into farce in its episodes there's an episode of that of that show where they have a goddamn baseball game there's one where they do an ocean's 11 in a holodeck you know and and then the one with like the love disease like they it is also one of the most explicitly silly of this of the trek shows like it's so interesting to me they had the right characters to do that because Captain Cisco is never going to be silly. And then he would be. And it's like, that's, they get the jokes, they get the mileage out of that, of taking these serious people and making Mm -hmm. them do silly things. I think the next episode you're going to cover may be one of my least favorite uh, resolutions. Yes. The Voyager episode. I remember the first time I saw it and I maybe have seen it once or twice since, like Mm -hmm. when once Star Trek appeared on Netflix and was like, oh, I can just watch them all. Right. And that might have been the only other time I watched it, but that's our Valentine's episode. So I like to do mm-hmm. one that's a little, last year we did Subrosa. So right, doing right, resolutions. Right. <laughs> so it's like we get a, we get an episode where not uh, Nana Nana's yeah. dead. Yes, right. But one episode that's uh, got a woman actually having an orgasm. And then yeah. we've got two people edging for an hour and it yeah. goes nowhere. So that'll <laughs> there be, you go. Uh, will there be sexy results? I don't, I don't recall there being sexy results, but Clint, Man. tell us yeah. uh, about the spool or anything you want to highlight that people should check out right away. Sure. Well, first of all, Sub Rosa always uh, lets the one line from Sub Rosa is always stuck in my head. Dinner light that candle. You'll bring the ghost. Um, anyway, putting uh, groundskeeper Willie in an episode was daring, yeah. even at oh, the beautiful. time. Yeah. I love that. Um, if anything, you know, Star Trek, uh, TNG and DS9 have, have uh, let us know that the Irish are alive and well in the 24th century <laughs> and just thriving. And and Voyager just let it sit with like, well, Kate Mulgrew's Irish. So right. <laughs> so, can get hollow horny to That's some right. uh yeah man what a, what a show that leaned so hard on the holodeck and like missed and whiffed almost every time except for like one episode great um, 
point. Oh, throwing. Yeah. Yes. Throwing shade. You're totally right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, uh, going back to my plugs. Yeah. So um, when I'm not guesting on wonderful podcasts like this, I am a <laughs> film and TV critic in the city uh, in, well, in the city being Chicago. I, I say that to other Chicagoans. It's weird. Anyway, um, I, Man I of run. Chicago. Yes, I'm a man of Chicago, even though I live in the suburbs now. Um, I <laughs> My big thing right now is I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of a site that I started back in 2019 called The Spool, um, which covers a lot of stuff. We actually do weekly recaps of a lot of um, current Trek right now. I think right now season four of Lower Decks is going, and we have folks on the recap beat for that. And uh, yeah, we have a bunch of great um, reviews and interviews and podcasts and stuff like that. One of them is the aforementioned right on cue. Um, we're taking a slight hiatus right now, but we should be back with a lot of fun um, stuff from like various composers. I've interviewed big folks, I've interviewed small folks. Um, I think our most recent episode is with the songwriters behind Dick's the Musical. Oh, yes. Um, which is, uh, <laughs> that's a fun time. And I've got some other folks uh, lined up for like the new Errol Morris documentary and what have you. Oh, um, Yorgos Lanthimos's new film, Poor Things. I should yep. be talking to the composer of that. Um, yeah, it's great. And then, um, yeah, and then I also freelance everywhere else. I, I I'm a senior writer at Consequence. I write stuff for RogerEvert.com. Occasionally freelance at like Block Club Chicago, Vulture, Polygon. Um, hopefully, I'll have some more time to pitch so that I have some like new bylines. Um, but that's pretty much how I'm keeping busy these days. All right. Well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. Until then, TMK out. Mm-hmm.